Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by Swine Tech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by the National Pork Board, Intervention, Crystal Spring, Johnsonville Foods, High Pork Genetics, Minitube, Brenneman Pork, Fibro Animal Health, Swine Robotics, Innovative Heating, and PigEquipment.com. Brought to you by American Resources. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Joining us today is Dr. Hyatt Frobos. How are you doing today, Hyatt? Great. Thanks for having me, Matt. Really excited to share your story. That's going to be the purpose today is to have Hyatt give his story all the way from his uh, years growing up and in college and, and his role today and, and so on. So really excited to share that. Uh, Hyatt, if you wouldn't mind, before we get into the whole story, could you give us a brief uh, background on what you do today? Yes. Uh, I serve as the U.S. Commercial Director and Nutritionist for Gigatech USA. Uh, many of you audience members may recognize our feeding equipment, which is marketed under the brand Gestall. And uh, I've, I've been with that company for about eight years. Uh, following my PhD in swine nutrition, I, I took on that role and have grown our company into what it is today. So what was it like growing up for you? Where did you grow up? Uh, did you grow up on a farm? What was that like? Absolutely. Uh, my mom and dad uh, both worked off farm. Uh, mom's a mixed practice veterinarian. My father's a beef extension specialist for Ohio State University. I uh, grew up in Northwest Ohio on family cattle operation and row crop operation. And uh, my dad had actually gotten his master's in swine genetics and still had an avid interest in pigs, but uh, was maybe not necessarily wanting to be one that's taking care of the sows all the time. So in my, in my efforts as a, as a young person to, to get sows, I was re- repeatedly rebuffed because I think my dad knew that once I went off to college, he'd be the one that was having to do all the heavy lifting. And he had done that in his younger years. But that kind of, uh, I guess, formed a, a, an, a interest in me to learn more about the swine industry because I was familiar with the cropping side and the cattle side. And the, the pig side was something I, I knew enough to be dangerous, but I wanted to get more in depth. Um, so as I, as I went through 4-H and FFA and livestock judging and, and things that are fairly common for people with the same background, uh, I ended up coming out to Kansas, uh, which is where I reside today. And I judged on the uh, livestock judging team at Butler Community College for two years. And then from there, transferred up to Kansas State University, where I was on multiple judging teams, as well as uh, doing my animal science undergrad. Uh, following that, I, I looked at several different universities, but, but I had an interest in going on for a, a, a master's degree at least. And my, my passion has always kind of been on the nutrition side, but I... I grew up with cattle and hogs, and I and I definitely liked some things about both sides. But I I quickly realized in undergrad that it's pretty hard to be an expert at uh, the different digestive systems that ruminants and monogastrics have. So, uh, as I looked at my options, uh, the K State Applied Swine Nutrition Program is is one of the best in the country. And uh, as I worked with them, some they they offered me the opportunity to do a master's degree there, and so I decided to stay on and do that while I was on my master's. 
Uh, and I coached the livestock judging team while uh, doing my master's and PhD. So uh, I didn't, uh, I, I, I pretty, pretty early on uh, stayed pretty busy throughout my, all of my tenure at, at uh, the university side. But uh, for me, the, the swine side really was where I saw maybe the most career opportunities and room for advancement. And there was a little bit of a selfish component of me choosing to go down the swine side too, as I, I consider myself deep down a stockman, and that's what I identify myself as more than maybe a scientist or a business director. Uh, I consider myself a stockman first and foremost, and I knew that whatever career path I chose, I needed to have livestock of my own too. And uh, so it was going to be either pigs or cattle or, or I guess maybe sheep or goats or something else. But uh, in my discussions with my wife and through these career developments, we kind of agreed that cattle are maybe a little bit easier to do on the side and they're a little more forgiving uh, as far as matching up with the rigors yeah. of, a, of a busy and growing career. And so we chose that direction and that allowed me to really stay focused on the pig side, but still kind of uh, get my fix on the stockmanship side by having some cattle too. Um, and so uh, as that grew, I, I went into my master's and my PhD programs with uh, a lot of dedication to that. Um, on my master's, I did a lot of research on mycotoxins and mitigants for mycotoxins, particularly vomitoxin, which is also known as deoxynovalenol. Um, one of the other research projects that I had during my master's, which has proven actually pretty, pretty helpful for me, is I, I worked with precision feeding on grow-finish pigs and looking at ways to change feeding strategies for growing pigs to improve feed efficiency, reduce feed cost and reduce nutrient excretion. And uh, I then did a little bit of a detour uh, and I spent a year in Australia. So I, I got a Fulbright scholarship through the US government to go and study in Australia as part of my master's program and uh, did work on immunocastration down there. For those who have a little bit of familiarity with the immunocastration product, it was actually created in Australia to help them be able to take intact bores uh, to heavier market weights. And so they actually created that product, and it's it's since been uh, approved and marketed in the U.S. and elsewhere for for various reasons. But it was neat to be down there during some of the stages where it hadn't been approved yet in the U.S. Uh, and I consider that that year in Australia as a really formative experience for myself. And uh, my wife and I actually got married right before we went, so our first year of marriage was in Australia. And we we joke sometimes that uh, you know we had to get along because we didn't really have anybody to run to if we if we weren't getting along so there were some some good uh, first first year marriage uh arguments that we just kind of had to learn how to do good conflict resolution <laughs> um but it's made us stronger over our our marriage i think because of it um but where that uh where that australia experience also kind of comes full circle to things is one of the big research areas that was going on in australia while i was there in 2011 uh, they were looking at due to pressures from consumer groups. Uh, they have two main re two main retailers in Australia, and one of them had gone out on a limb and basically created a mandate for group housing, which required sows to be only housed in stalls for I think less than five days. Um, and obviously, the the swine industry in Australia was struggling with that mandate and how they could fit that those demands for one of their key grocers. Uh, but there was there was a some research that was being pursued looking at whether the sow could be stimulated to come into heat and bred in the farrowing crate. And 
there was some surprisingly positive information coming out of that. And so as I came back to K-State and uh, was finishing up my master's, I, my brain was already turning about what what would a good PhD program look for me? I, I actually looked at maybe going out into the industry and then decided to stay on for a PhD. And uh, the twist that I decided to go down was to maybe shift a little bit out of nutrition and towards reproduction. Um, and I brought on Dr. Dwayne Davis at Kansas State, as well as the nutrition professors who I had already had. And we decided to try to replicate some of the Australian research in the U.S. sow herd, uh, particularly without using any synchronization agents or any hormones. Um, hmm. And so I was, I was, I'm really grateful for the, the group at K-State because I, uh, I had a tendency to go down some rabbit holes. And this, this research, I think, was, was really interesting, but maybe didn't have immediate commercial application. Um, but it's, it's kind of funny how that research uh, has played out as we, we've seen a lot of things change in the swine industry over the past 10 years. And uh, Prop 12 and now the end of the cage age in Europe and some of these other changes that are being mandated by states and countries um, have really forced us as swine producers to look at different ways to get the job done. And as much as something that may sound as crazy as trying to stimulate and breed the sow in the farrowing crate seemed really far off in 2012, um, I've, I've had several situations where customers who are maybe having to adapt to some of these changing mandates in and their marketing contracts have taken some serious look at that. And, and I think, you know, uh, we need to continue to be open-minded because who knows what the next wrinkle that we're going to get thrown at us. Um, the nice thing is that us as livestock producers, we're usually pretty good at finding a way to get it done and still raise pigs in a high quality and high welfare environment. So um, I think that th those formative stages for me and my education really helped uh, set my blueprint for what I really pride myself on today is being a solution provider. And that's part of the reason that I chose to go in, and work with Giga. Uh, I had worked with Gestalt during my PhD research on, on stimulating estrus and lactating sows. They had actually installed Gestalt feeders at the K-State Swine Farm right around the time that I was starting my, my sow research. And so because I was the, the young guy that was in there, you know, it was like, well, hi, you, got, you figure out how to run these new feeders. And so I developed a relationship with the, yeah. with the people from, from Giga and uh, uh, asked a lot of questions, tried some things, and kind of learned the rules of the road with the lactation feeder. Um, and that, you know, I didn't know that, if, that it would become what it has today. But as I was nearing the end of my PhD, um, Giga, as a French-Canadian-based company, they have a presence in many countries. But prior to, to bringing me on board, there wasn't a, a physical person for for just all in the U.S. And so they, they approached me with a desire to grow into the U.S. market and also to, to beef up their nutritionist resources because they, they didn't have a nutritionist on staff. Um, so it's kind of interesting how that all came, uh, came to be. But uh, following the completion of my Ph.D. in 2015, I took on that role and uh, around that same time, uh, just all came out with our, our pen gestation feeding system which is, has, has gotten a lot of traction in the U.S. and uh, where I've, I've really uh, spent a lot of time helping producers adapt and retrofit facilities or build new facilities for pen gestation. And so I think that, that timeline really matched up well uh, that, that we created that product around the time I started so I could really um, get the flywheel turning on helping producers integrate to pen gestation. No, it's awesome. Yeah, it's been a, it's, it's been a journey. I mean... 
you had to be comfortable stepping outside your comfort zone when you're thinking about going from Ohio to Kansas to Australia and back for PhD. And then you've got this company up in Canada who wants you to take a leap of faith and, and you jumped into that and, and, and you've quite frankly nailed it. So um, I'd love to ask you some questions to kind of get back in because you've given us a really good timeline of your, your career and your life here. And I'm going to kind of dig a little bit, but before I do, do some rapid fire questions. And the first one is what D one college do you root for? Are you a Buckeye or are you, are you a wildcat? Much to my wife's chagrin. I, I still am a Buckeye at, at my core. Uh. So uh, <laughs> I, I will tell anybody that K state college of agriculture, I'm absolutely all in K state and I do cheer for K state athletics, but you know, the, if you get the question of if Ohio state and K state are playing in football, who do you cheer for? I got to go back to my Buckeyes. So that, that rankles plenty of people and my wife, most of all, but, uh, that's, I love that's the loyalty. <laughs> I love the loyalty. Like nothing okay, makes okay. me happier than the Hawkeye fan who goes to Iowa state and remains the Hawkeye fan. <laughs> yeah. That, that's a good analogy. Right. And, uh, my wife will call, she calls me a t-shirt fan. Cause I didn't get any of my degrees from there, but you know, when we had, we had, my dad worked for the university. And uh, so we had season football tickets and would go to every Ohio state game. And if you grew up in Ohio, you know, NFL, you know, there's Browns fans and Bengals fans and such, but you know, if you're in Ohio, you're usually a Buckeye fan more than you are or anything else. And it, it kind of stays with you regardless of where you go. What is your uh, go-to karaoke song? Go to karaoke. Uh, I'll say "Sweet Caroline." Oh, that, that, that's Iowa State's go-to song. I don't, that's that's oh, terrible. My bad. I <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't karaoke much, so no, it's it's fun. We have a uh, fun fun back and forth on that. Uh, what about your last impulse buy? I just bought a used 24 foot stock trailer for my cattle operation off Craigslist. And drove to Texas <laughs> to go get it. <laughs> that was pretty impulse buy. <laughs> what about an actor or actress that you love or an actor or actress that you just can't stand? Oh, um, yeah, I'll, I'll do one of each and, and maybe both are controversial. Okay. So he may not be everybody's favorite, but I, I really like Mel Gibson. I, I've always liked Mel Gibson okay. movies and uh, he's he's a little bit uh He's gotten himself into some trouble as he's gotten older, but I've always been a fan of his work. And I don't have a good reason for why I don't like this actress, but I just cannot stand Renee Zellweger. Uh, any any movie she's in, it just I about want to shut it off anytime I have to deal with her. Don't ask me why. She just I hate her face. Apparently, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite food? Hmm. I'll, I, I really like Asian food. I, I, the genre, I'll, I'll, I'll just say okay. that I, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty eclectic eater, but I, when I, when I go out and I'm picking something that I can't make at home that I really like it, I drift towards Asian food. If I know I'm in an area where I can get good Asian food. And then what's your go-to beer? Bushlight. There you go. Again, I'll probably drink anything that's cold and free, but uh, when I'm buying a we're, we drink a lot of bush, bush light around this, these areas. So do you buy them by the bushel or are you buying a normal pack? <laughs> uh, just, just as needed, I suppose. <laughs> the 30, what do they call it? The 36 packs, the bushel, right? Yeah. I've never seen those. I, no. They, yeah. They make those? 
Yeah, yeah, well, apparently yeah. I haven't looked hard enough. Big box for bush light, and they call it the bushel. Oh, really? I'm gonna have to look for that. I uh, yeah, I haven't seen that. Well, there's a first time for everything. Um, and then what's on the top of your travel bucket list? You've you've traveled a lot of places. What's what's that place you just got to go to? Uh, oh, good question. Well, for me, it's always trying to determine where I can accomplish with kids and that I can convince the wife to go to as well. But if if it was just me and unencumbered by some of that, I, I would say probably New Zealand. I haven't okay. been, we, we lived in Australia for a year and we didn't get the chance went. to real, we had connections there, but we were, we were so poor and we were trying to get as much sure. of Australia seen as we could and trying to stretch our dollar. Cause this was like after the, 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 Great Recession, you know, the recession. Yeah, yeah. So the U.S. dollar was weak. It was about on par with the Aussie dollar. And Aussie dollar is usually like 75 cents, kind of like the the loony. And uh, so we really had to kind of stretch our buck. And traveling in Australia was a little easier to get done, even though it's a big country, too. So we just kind of resolved to see as much as we could of Australia. And we'll go back and see New Zealand later in life. And, you know, uh, 10 years later, we haven't done that yet. So we need to we need to make that trip happen. That's awesome. It just it just takes a little while to get there, and those uh, intercontinental flights have not gone down in price with uh, recent inflationary pressures. So let's let's talk about some challenges. Uh, when you were in college and you're going through either degree, what was the biggest challenge that you had to overcome? Probably the one that that I guess was always top of mind for me is. I was trying really hard to continue to be a livestock judging coach and be involved in competition teams and the travel that that took um, and the people management that that took while also maintaining a, a robust research program with, you know, with some integrity to it. You know, I didn't want to just be one of those former livestock judging coaches that got a degree because they did it long enough and they wanted to finally just get them out of there. So I, it was really important to me that I tried to do both well, and that that's challenging. Um, and so I, I'm lucky that I had good people around me and people that were willing to work with me on that. And I, I learned to delegate and I learned to lean on some, some people that I had. And um, I think that's that whole experience has served me well, but that was a, a constant balancing act that I was trying to do throughout my master's and my PhD. And I probably didn't do it as well as maybe I could have if I'd done one of them alone, but I really do think I'm better for, for what I tried to accomplish on both sides. And I think it's important for both sides to have some of that. Yeah. I'm, I'm a bit like that where when you're overloaded, you actually perform better, right? You might not have gotten a hundred out of a hundred out of what you're trying to accomplish, but it was whenever in life and I didn't have many times, but where I didn't have a lot going on and it's everything just went nowhere. So yeah, I, I think can, it depends really... how you're wired, and, and I think you and I are yeah. wired a little similarly on that. But um, I'm not very very good at letting the grass grow beneath my feet. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. So, what about after college? You started working uh, with Giga, and uh, you were setting up basically the U.S. division for the for the business. What was one of the biggest challenges that you had to overcome in setting that up and bringing? precision feeding to the U S in a back exit format. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know that we have time for all of that, but <laughs> at, the same, at the same token, um, 
There were plenty of challenges initially. You know, I, I you know I could make the argument that we were maybe a, a you know late entry to precision feeding and pen gestation. So trying to justify how our system was different and why it maybe had more chances at success there. In 2015, I would have said in many, I, I worked really hard to not say the word ESF because oh. for many systems in the industry, it, had, it was a negative stereotype. You know, people yeah, had like tried- NEDAP and Osborne and those were basically, NEDAP was the one taking the industry by storm at the moment, like from 12 yes. to 15. Absolutely. And I, when I started, I mean, I, I had NEDAP on a pedestal as, as some, you know, the company that we had to chase and try to try to beat. And, uh, you know, I, I, obviously believe that we had a had an angle to take there but i it's interesting how sitting here in 2023 the the landscape is different yeah. and i i don't need to throw other companies under the bus or anything but you know certainly the maybe the order of of who's who's where is is a little different it can be said um so as as we yeah. entered the go ahead yeah and so you don't have to basically between at the, in 2014 2015 front exit esf was the way and Correct. today, looking back, back exit is clearly the winner in in the U.S. Yes, that's that's yeah. a good that's a good summary, and 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 I I'd like to think that some of that was because of uh, the ro- roads we took. Um, maybe the best way to to answer your initial question is I, I had worked with some different technologies and feeding systems during my degrees, and so um, when I got approached to take on the Gestal role that I have today. I, I'm, I'm a trained nutritionist, not a trained salesman, although I do a lot of sales today. So one of the ways that I rationalize that is I told my, my, uh, the company owners who hired me, I said, if we're going to do this, we are going to need to live and die by support because that seemed to be the, the difference between success and failure in the precision feeding and technology game at the time is there was some horror stories of customers who didn't have good support and products failed and you know, it, you couldn't just have a one and done type of a of an approach because our systems are so interlinked in our swine industry. It's a good way to keep riffraff out as we, we all talk and, you know, bad news travels pretty fa- faster than good news in many cases. And so I just decided that I'm going to service the hell out of every install that we do. And at the time, it was me doing sales through installation and support. Um, but I really knew that we had to get the flywheel turning on our system and had to have some success stories because that's, that, that's what has led to our further growth. Um, you know, getting one barn in each system is not a good way for long-term success. Um, and so I really, you know, kind of hammered that home, you know, for example, we have not leaned heavily on a dealer type model with our equipment. And that might be different than some other systems and other equipment. Um, we we have some dealers and we work closely with them, but one of the prerequisites that I had with our dealers that were some of which were already existing before I started was that a just all person is going to come and do the, the hookup of the equipment, the, the, and the final training with the people that really the people onboarding part. And that keeps the support side in our camp rather than having a middle person in there that may not be an expert on our equipment. That's muddying the waters or, or maybe not getting the communication back to the, to the customer. And uh, I think those decisions have really helped lead to our success and the model we have. Um, and we, we maintain that to this day. But since I was the first person in the U.S., I, I had to be both sales and service because I was the only one. You know, I had some support from Quebec, but I was the guy that was here. 
that appealed to me as I joined Just All because I, I wanted – that was one thing I worried about after getting my PhD was that I wasn't going to have enough time in Barnes. As I was trapped behind a desk, you know, and um, that doesn't fit my personality very well. So that appealed to me about the position as I took it on was that blend of the two. I didn't want to be always doing sales or always doing technical things, but getting, you know, having a different landscape every day. Yeah. Um, to this day, as our business has grown, um, each rep that I hire, I've, I've, I've really tried hard to hire people that have a pig background uh, because that's something I think is really hard to teach. But I want people that are able to do both sales and service because I think it makes us all better at the selling part that we, you know, we need to know our product to be able to sell it well. And, and it just keeps you connected with the customer and, and really feeling that pulse for, for, for future business. And so that, that model is something that was a challenge initially to try to figure that out. Cause it's not the same approach that every company has taken, but at least for our products and, and making precision feeding take off towards the direction I think it could go. I think it's been really important to our success. Yeah, we definitely, when we were um, building out support, we looked at what you guys were doing, what Maximus was doing. There's definitely been some companies in the industry that have really focused on support. And uh, it's been it's been really cool to watch. And you got to credit some of our success on support to a lot of the things we learned just by watching, watching you guys be successful. Uh, but yeah, when we went and hired people, it was only individuals with South Farm management experience. It's like, yeah, we can train the support and train some of this stuff. But when you walk into that barn... And you do a simple walkthrough and you talk to the manager. If you can't get a quick grasp of how things are going in that conversation, you are at such a disadvantage. It's, it's not even fair. Um, it's, it's such a complicated world to step into and try to learn. As leaders, though, in both of our organizations um, and, and having to go through the hiring process and, and staffing side of things, we've inadvertently also made it a little harder because those people that can check all those boxes are fewer and farther between or maybe in the wrong location uh, or, you know, un- not affordable in, in cases. Um, and so, you know, we've we've painted ourselves into a box a little bit there. But I think if you can put the right members on the team, it, it's the right it's it's the right path for, for us anyways. Um, yeah. Yeah. Protecting the support and that experience for the customer means that you have to take a slower hiring process. It's just mm. it's just harder uh, to vet it all. So not that long ago, you also went through a pretty big scare. Uh, you had a, a, an accident. Can you talk us through what I guess before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about your cattle operation and tell us yep. about your family and some of the things that your wife does that makes her pretty famous? Yeah, so uh, my wife's my wife's Brandy Brandy Buzzard, uh, and she she is very active on social media. Uh, she has been uh, until recently. She was working full time for uh, NCBA and then the Red Angus Association as their director of communications. Uh, she's actually went out on her own uh, more recently and, and is doing contract work because her. I guess her celebrity status increased to the point where she was, you know, getting enough requests for for things that she needed to be independent. Um, but she is a very active influencer, uh, and one who promotes a lot of ag issues and, uh, interacts with consumers quite a bit. So she's highly sought after for some speaking events and, uh, partnerships with certain companies. Um, and she uses our, our cattle operation and our, and our agricultural, uh, operation as a landscape for, for some of the work she does. And so it, 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 it fits together nicely, um, I talked a little earlier about my my passion for stockmanship, and um, you know I I get to experience that through our cattle operation. 
which, uh, you know, we continue to grow, but are trying to grow that the right way that, that works with our busy schedules. Um, but we actually uh, would raise seed stock cattle, uh, primarily Gelvy and Balancer cattle to sell commercial bulls. Um, and we do that on a private treaty basis. I, I mean, we're still pretty small compared to, to many people who are more well-established. But the majority of our cattle would be fall calvers. Uh, and that actually was chosen partly because calving in the springtime is a busy time for all of our swine industry trade shows. And it's also oh, usually yeah. not the best weather to be calving and such. Um, and so the fall calving program for us has has worked well because it's just a lot more low maintenance. Um, however, there was a, a dispersal of a, of a prominent Gelby herd in South Dakota a few years back. And I saw it as an opportunity to maybe infuse some good genetics into our herd. And I kind of socked away some money for something like that. Uh, but there's not really many fall calvers in South Dakota. So one of the caveats that came with that is when I bought those cows, uh, they were all due to calve in the spring. I bought them in uh, around Thanksgiving. So I thought, you know, hey, no big deal. We'll just calve them out one time and then maybe we can convert them to fall calvers and it won't be a big problem. Well, um, it just so happened that we then had like the coldest February that I can remember. Um, so this would have been 2021. One. Yep, yeah. 2021. And uh if anybody remembers Valentine's Day around that time, it was very, very cold in most of the country, uh, Kansas uh, notwithstanding. Well, it just so happened that many of the bred heifers that I got in that group were due to calve right then. They were AI bred. Hmm. And so we had we had gotten them into a, a an area where we had them kind of uh, – they had a little more area for shelter and we had some calving pens. But it was an older facility that I was renting and, and it wasn't necessarily set up perfectly. So – with the cold, we early in that process, we, we, we lost one calf to just cold conditions. And I'm thinking about the money that I spent on these high dollar animals and wanting to prevent that from happening again. So I resolved to get any animals that were due into some calving pens where if we got to thaw out some, ha some water and, you know, hand feed, so be it, uh, to save calves. Well, one of these, one of these heifers, uh, she was she was due in the coming days, and we were trying to get her up into these calving pens area, and she did not have any interest in going. And luckily, I had a had a guy that was working with me uh, that was there trying to help me kind of shoo her forward. And the ground was all chopped up and frozen, and I was a little over determined to get her in. And she decided to call my bluff, and uh, so she actually ran into me as she went past me to go back out in the lot, and and that impact combined with me falling i i hit my head on the on the on the frozen ground and uh i was knocked out cold and so uh quickly the 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 young man that was helping uh went over to the nearest uh, house and and called 911 cuz i was you know non respond not responsive wow. and uh by the way i'd had some concussions in high school so that probably predisposed me for this but uh they got life flight in and and they got me uh got me up to KU Med and uh, put me in an induced coma for a few days because I had a, I, I had a, a brain hemorrhage and a, a TBI is the kind of commonly termed version of that. So I was under for, for several days and um, very, very, very lucky that I did not have more, more repercussions from it because uh, any of you, any of you audience members who are familiar with people who have TBIs, you can be back to normal. Uh, like I think for the most part I am, or you can be, you know, damaged for life or, or obviously die as well. And so I was very, very fortunate. And the doctors actually said that 
the fact that it was so cold might have actually really helped me because it kept the it kept my the blood, blood flow, flow down. Slow. Yeah, I kept wow. the blood flow slow, and they felt that that probably actually minimized my the severity of my hemorrhage. So, so yeah, so I I I, I got out of the hospital and I was put on you know bed rest and and uh, not supposed to do anything for for a while until I I got through some physical therapy and some speech therapy to to get back on board. Meanwhile, this is when Prop 12 is really taken off, and we have a bunch of projects on the table, and I'm just, you know, I'm just tearing my You're walls. Tear, yeah, I'm, I'm tearing the walls down trying to get to, to, to be involved because I, I felt like I could do everything, but I, I mean, I wasn't at 100%. So um, if you interviewed my wife on that, she'd have a lot of things to say, but she was a, a real saint and uh, powered through that challenging time with me being uh, not very fun to be around. And, uh, I think Luckily, you said at the time that you wanted to be more active than what uh, your wife thought was justified. <laughs> like she was pretty much there to make sure you didn't do anything stupid. Yes, that, that's right. And uh, you know, I, they took my, they took away my phone and my computer for a while because they said that being on screens and stuff wouldn't be good for my brain. Um, so I was, you know, like totally oh, wow. disconnected. And uh, but I also couldn't do anything physical. I couldn't go do anything with my cattle or anything. So like, I would go take a walk or watch watched a show on Netflix or something, but I was, I was going stir crazy. I ended up getting out a bunch of pens and paper and I did some, I I did taxes and I did a bunch of uh, financial budgets for the year and stuff because I was just itching to do something. And (laughs) it was, it was stressful, but uh, we got through it and uh, it gave me at 33 or whenever that happened. I think one thing that was good is it gave me a real appreciation for my own mortality and having, I mean, we've got, my wife was pregnant at the time, which we hadn't actually disclosed to anybody. So that added to the stress. Um, so uh, as a parent and, and such, it, it really helped me kind of recognize, all right, maybe you don't need to put yourself in those situations, Hyatt, uh, where yeah. those things can happen. And so I've, I've tried to pace myself a little bit and maybe think a little more smartly about not injuring myself in my haste of, of all the things that I try to do. So thanks for sharing that. Uh, to wrap things up here, can you give us a nutshell on where you think or what excites you most about where precision feeding is going and where yeah. just all is, is going? Well, this is obviously a passion for me and, and something that we deal with daily. But, um, you know, at technology, there's been a lot of principles within nutrition that we as nutritionists have known for a long time. In a perfect world, we could do X if we had Y. Um, finally, I think we have some technologies that are allowing some of those known opportunities become realities. And whether that's feeding individual sows different on different days of lactation or managing pigs and grow finish individually different or reducing the amount of bins that you need to use from the feed mill to be able to phase feed in the nursery, um, we are just scratching the surface on what we can do on precision feeding. And that's really the balance that, that at just all we have to walk is, you know, we need to walk before we run. And a lot, a lot of the infrastructure needs to be set up in these barns so that we can take baby steps. But um, the opportunities are, are huge in terms of what we can do at the individual pig level. And although sows have been maybe the low hanging fruit, we're seeing, tremendous opportunities in managing guilt development differently so that we can hopefully positively impact longevity 
as well as opportunities in the growing pig space to maybe manage pens of pigs differently or even individual pigs differently. And I think with the increased feed costs we are seeing and the challenges with labor, um, I don't think those are going to go away. And if you want to write me a blueprint for where precision feeding makes a lot more sense, it's in a high feed cost, high labor environment. And unfortunately, for the, the broader context, that's that seems to be the reality going forward. And I think as long as we have technologies that are ergonomic enough to be effective in barns, um, we're, we're going to need to continue to adopt technology. And, and that's you know something that your company is also seeing. But uh, I'm a big believer that although we, we have progress yet to make, um, the opportunities out there are huge in order for how much money we're leaving on the table and the ability to feed, feed animals individually better. Yeah. And in a time where the profitability of the business is getting harder and harder and harder, there are opportunities that just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So I, I think we're in a world where, yes, the business is hard, but we are in a position where there are more opportunities than we've ever had in a, in a long time, just with the, the types of problems we're trying to solve. So that's exciting. What's, in the, uh, what in the, in, in the nutrition area, a uh, kind of a saying that a lot of old nutritionists say is that it's our goal to get the right feed to the right pig at the right time. Mm -hmm. And we don't always do a great job of that with our current infrastructure. But, you know, if you really want to be a critical person, we're, we're feeding to averages because of limitations in most of our systems. And as we look at these technologies that can help us feed pigs individually better, it's going to turn that statement on its head to where we can do that at Actually such a more granular level than at a farm or, or pen or, or phase level. So what's a golden nugget that you'd be willing to share some life lesson that you picked up? I, I would say a life lesson for me is that I, I've always been proud of what I can accomplish and I feel like I can do everything uh, or I, I should be able to do everything. And I've learned that just with the growth and, and what we've tried to accomplish you really got to surround yourself by with good people. And so uh, that being able to build a team that I can lean on, there's just things that I can't do. And, uh, you know, as you grow, you have to be good at, at having team management. And um, I couldn't, we couldn't be where we're at today without the team of people I have around me. Um, I like to think that I'm an important part of that, but um, I, I've really come to appreciate that. It, it may be going from a solo contributor to, someone who is managing a team today. Well, we really appreciate you being a guest on the Popular Pig Podcast. It's been a pleasure for you to go through your life story and, and what you've learned and some of the challenges along the way, and we really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the interest in uh, having me peel those layers back. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by Swine Tech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.